and welcome to PassPack Podcast, your audio passport from physician assistant student to certified and beyond with your host, Rebecca Harrell, MPA, PAC. Today, our destination is a high-yield review of women's health based on the EOR content blueprint. So sit back, relax, and let's do the dang thing. Hey everyone, it's Becca. As usual, we're going to go in descending order of the percentages on the Women's Health Blueprint for the EOR. As we move through all of these sections, I want you to remember that whenever I'm discussing a condition that affects women or there's a woman in the STEM, please keep in mind this will apply to anyone assigned female at birth or with female reproductive organs, which can include trans males, non-binary, and intersex individuals. First, we're going to start with gynecological disorders, starting with menstruation, which makes up 15% of the EOR. Your patient is a 51-year-old G3P3 woman who presents to your office due to new hot flashes, sleep disturbances, and vaginal itching and discomfort. History reveals her last period was about 12 months ago. What hormonal changes do you expect her labs to show? You should see an elevated FSH, which is usually over 15 to 25. You'll also usually see a decreased estrogen and progesterone level. Patients going through menopause will typically present older than 45 years old, with the average patient usually starting around 51 years old. Menopause will be described as the patient having a history of amenorrhea for about 12 months, with classic symptoms of hot flashes, which is due to the inappropriate vasodilation that leads to a drop in core body temperature secondary to declining estrogen acting on the hypothalamus. This results in that inappropriate vasomotor symptoms, which will be seen in a hot flash. They may also report sleep disturbances and vaginal discomfort. And remember, the vaginal discomfort is due to the dryness resulting from that decrease in estrogen, which is called atrophic vaginitis. And that is the most common cause of postmenopausal bleeding and is treated with topical estrogens and lubricants. Remember, even if suspecting bleeding is secondary to atrophic vaginitis, endometrial biopsy should be done on all women over 45 with abnormal uterine bleeding due to the increased risk of endometrial slash uterine cancer, which is present in 5 to 10% of these patients. Perimenopause starts about four years before the last menstrual period and will consist of irregular cycles with fluctuations in hormones. Long-term consequences from decrease in estrogen leads to bone loss, weight gain, increased risk of CVD or cardiovascular disease, and weight gain. And women with moderate to severe symptoms during menopause and who have not had a hysterectomy should have menopausal hormone therapy that consists of estrogen plus progesterone. Progesterone must be included to prevent the cancer risk from endometrial hyperplasia due to estrogen alone. Estrogen is contraindicated in those with a breast cancer history, coronary artery disease, prior venothromboembolism, or active liver disease. Your 22-year-old G2P20002 female patient comes into the ER due to pelvic pain, dysmenorrhea, and dyspareunia with painful bowel movements all surrounding her menstrual cycle. 
Physical exam is normal aside from tenderness during pelvic examination. Pelvic ultrasound and abdominopelvic CT are both normal. What is your top differential? The answer is endometriosis. This results from endometrial tissues growing at extrauterine sites. Most commonly is going to be the pelvis with the ovaries affected. Patients primarily are affected during reproductive age presenting with the three Ds, dyspareunia, dyskesia, and dysmenorrhea with little to no abnormalities seen on imaging or during physical exam. Laparoscopy is the definitive diagnostic test for visualizing ectopic endometrium plus or minus those chocolate cysts. You'll treat the pain with NSAIDs and OCPs treat the actual dysfunction. Gynecological referral for discussion of hormonal therapy should be initiated and or surgical management considered. Okay, let's get into the gynecological infections which make up 12% on the EOR. Your patient is a nullygravid female who presents to the office due to increased discharge, which started after having sex with her new partner. Physical exam reveals increased discharge coming from the cervix. With test as negative, pH is within normal limits, but microbiological gram stain shows obligate intracellular organisms and gram-negative diplococci. What do you prescribe as treatment for your top differential? Doxycycline for seven days should cover for chlamydia, and ceftriaxone 500 milligrams IM covers for gonorrhea. Even if this patient did not have gonorrhea confirmed with testing, you would still empirically treat someone with suspected chlamydia for gonorrhea. If the patient was pregnant, you would substitute the doxycycline with PO azithromycin 1 gram once. Chlamydia is the most common STD in the U.S., and while typically asymptomatic in females, the most common manifestation of symptomatic chlamydia is cervicitis. Don't forget to treat all sexual partners as well and instruct to abstain for one week following treatment initiation. Differentials for infectious causes of symptoms include bacterial vaginosis, trichomonas, and candidiasis. BV presents with thin, grayish, white malodorous discharge, which results in a positive whiff test with basic pH and clue cells visualized on a wet mount, which are rod and cocci studded epithelial cells. As we've discussed in prior episodes, the most common cause of this is Gardnerella vaginalis and other anaerobe overgrowth secondary to the decreased lactobacilli. You'll treat with metronidazole PO and remember to remind the patients to avoid alcohol while taking metronidazole to avoid a disulfiram reaction. Alternatively, you can treat with intravaginal metronidazole or clindamycin cream. Trichomonas will typically present with vulvovaginal paritis or discomfort, frothy greenish malodorous vaginal discharge, and a strawberry cervix, which is visualization of punctate hemorrhages on the cervix during the pelvic exam. pH will be more basic and a wet mount will show mobile flagellated trichomonads swimming around with positive WBCs. Treatment will also be with metronidazole. Candidal vaginitis is secondary to overgrowth of candida, usually seen in those with immunocompromised, such as poor glycemic control of diabetics or recent use of antibiotics. Vaginal symptoms include pruritus and burning most commonly, and physical exam will reveal white curd-like vaginal discharge 
usually adherent to the vaginal walls. There'll be no odor typically present in a patient with candidal vaginitis. Wet mount with 10% KOH will reveal spores and branch chain hyphae or pseudohyphae and pH will typically be normal. Treat with PO antifungals like PO fluconazole, but if pregnant, the preference is intravaginal treatment with clotrimazole or myconazole. Your patient with a history of chlamydial infection comes into the ER with lower abdominal pain in the setting of mucopurulent vaginal discharge and recent dyspareunia. Physical exam reveals adnexal tenderness and positive chandelier sign. Her urine pregnancy test comes back positive and echo confirms intrauterine development. How should you treat her suspected diagnosis? First, because she's pregnant, you would want to admit her to the hospital in order to deliver IV second-gen cephalosporins like IV cefoxetin or IV cefotetin and one gram azithromycin for her suspected diagnosis of PID. In mild cases of PID, you can treat with septindoxy plus minus metronidazole outpatient, but anyone with a high fever or other signs of systemic toxicity should be admitted inpatient. Differentials of acute abdomen in females should include your normal heavy hitters like appendicitis, but also remember to consider ectopic pregnancy, tubo-ovarian abscess, ovarian torsion, or PID. Let's move on to gynecological neoplasms, which make up 10% of the EOR. What is the most common cause of cervical cancer? Squamous cell carcinoma makes up for 70 to 85% of cervical cancers with adenocarcinoma coming in second. Cervical cancer is the third most common gynecological cancer in the United States behind endometrial slash uterine cancer, which is number one, and ovarian cancer, which is number two. But don't forget ovarian cancer takes the lead as the most common gynecological cancer death. Your 61-year-old female patient presents with vague GI symptoms including early satiety, bloating, and abdominopelvic pain with palpable adnexal mass on exam. History reveals her mother and aunt both had breast cancer, and she has always suspected she would also have it because cancer tends to run in their family. Pelvic ultrasound reveals a mass, increasing your suspicion for your top differential based on her H&P. What tumor marker do you suspect would be elevated in this patient? CA125. This patient likely has ovarian cancer, which is the second most common gynecological malignancy and is the leading cause of gynecological cancer death in the United States. Her risk factors include positive family history of breast cancer, which is likely secondary to positive BRCA1 or BRCA2, and is strongly linked with familial ovarian cancer syndrome. The tumor marker CA125 is elevated in 50 to 90% of women with early ovarian cancer, but two-thirds of women with ovarian cancer will present with advanced disease on diagnosis. The most common type of primary ovarian cancer is epithelial in origin and typically affects those over 60 years old, but the most common cause in women under 20 is of germ cell origin, which typically presents as malignant dysgerminoma or teratoma. Symptoms presented in the stem especially early satiety and bloating, should make you think of ovarian cancer. I remember this by imagining the O for ovarian as a bloated belly. What is the treatment of the most common gynecological malignancy in the U.S.? (music) 
total hysterectomy with bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy. Endometrial, aka uterine cancer, is the most common gynecological malignancy in the United States with adenocarcinoma as the most common type. You should suspect this diagnosis in any postmenopausal patient with painless, abnormal uterine bleeding, especially with a positive family history of colon cancer or endometrial cancer, such as seen in Lynch syndrome. Remember, other risk factors for endometrial cancer include unopposed estrogen monotherapy. Biopsy should be provided for all postmenopausal patients with abnormal uterine bleeding, but if they choose, you can perform a TVUS or transvaginal ultrasound to look to see if there is thickened endometrial strip, which is considered positive if over 4 millimeters thick. Okay, we'll get into more cancer high yields later in our rapid review, but now let's move on to breast disorders, which make up 8% of your EOR. Your 26-year-old G1P1001 female patient is three weeks postpartum when she reports painful lumps on her breast with overlying erythema, edema, and warmth. Physical reveals firm, shiny skin on her breast with nipple fissures and discharge. Vitals are all within normal limits except for a fever of 100.4 Fahrenheit. What should be initiated as treatment? The answer here is dicloxacillin. You need a drug that will provide good coverage for staph strains, especially staph aureus, which is the most common organism in mastitis and breast abscess. If I had said in the stem the mass was fluctuant on palpation, you should suspect an abscess, which would then be treated with IND. Breastfeeding is the most common cause of mastitis, which is cellulitis of the breast tissue, typically due to clogged milk ducts, but this can also be seen in other populations. Patients should be educated on continuing to breastfeed to prevent abscess and allow for efficient removal of milk. Your 30-year-old female patient arrives to your OBGYN clinic to discuss her intense bilateral breast pain that occurs right before her periods. Physical exam reveals mobile, tender masses that have a rope-like quality on palpation. What can be done for this patient that is both diagnostic and therapeutic? Aspiration of cystic lesions and fibrocystic breast disease will be both diagnostic and therapeutic. The fluid in fibrocystic breast disease, which is the most common condition leading to multiple lesions in the breast, will be straw-colored. Ultrasound can also be useful for diagnosis, but is not therapeutic. Unlike fibroadenomas, fibrocystic breast disease is not associated with increased risk of breast cancer. We'll cover more high-yield gynecological disorders in our rapid review, but let's now move on to obstetrics, starting with prenatal care and normal pregnancy, making up 16% of your EOR. Your G1P0 patient at 37 weeks gestation will likely possess which physiological acid-based status? Respiratory alkalosis. Remember, respiratory alkalosis is secondary to a decrease in PCO2, which is seen in conditions like hyperventilation, but also in pregnancy. I try to remember this as there's less room to breathe in air that later changes to CO2, leading to an overall decrease in PCO2 and subsequent alkalosis. Other normal physiological changes in pregnancy include increased heart rate, 
cardiac output, and blood volume, which subsequently leads to that splitting of the S2 heart sound. Some other physiological changes include decreased gut motility, systemic vascular resistance, albumin, h among others. When should a patient undergo screening for group B strep, or GBS, during pregnancy? Patients should be screened for GBS in the third trimester around 35 to 37 weeks gestation. If positive for GBS, antibiotics should be administered around the time of labor to reduce the risk of vertical transmission to the neonate. The antibiotic of choice is penicillin G. Other testing of particular importance to remember includes screening for rubella, syphilis, and other STDs around weeks 10 or 12 or during the first prenatal visit, maternal AFP around 16 to 18 weeks, serum quad or amniocentesis around 15 to 22 weeks, a glucose challenge test around 24 to 28 weeks, and remember the 28-week visit should also include the administration of anti-D immunoglobulin, aka Rogam, at that time as well in a pregnant patient with the blood type that's RH negative and a potential RH positive fetus. You should also be giving Rogam at any time of bleeding during the pregnancy. And we'll discuss Rogam a little bit later. Fetal position should begin being evaluated for at 36 to 37 weeks gestation. The most common cephalic presentation at delivery is occiput anterior, which is also the position that leads to the least risk of adverse outcomes. You can use the Leopold maneuver to determine fetal position. Let's get into pregnancy complications, which make up 15% of your EOR exam. Your 21-year-old G2P0010 with a BMI of 38 presents to her 24-week visit to perform her initial glucose challenge test. One hour later, it's determined she must undergo a diagnostic glucose tolerance test. What must her glucose level have been at the one-hour mark to require this? one hundred thirty to one hundred forty or higher. If the initial challenge screening is positive, a patient requires a three hour one hundred gram glucose tolerance test within that week to confirm diagnosis. Diagnosis of gestational diabetes can be made during the three hour glucose tolerance test. The patient should present fasting and the diagnosis is made if their glucose is over ninety five percent when fasting or if up to 140 plus after three hours of the glucose administration. In patients with GDM, diabetic diet should be initiated with close monitoring of glucose. The treatment of choice if blood sugar remains uncontrolled is insulin. Reassure patients that 50% of gestational diabetes is reversible immediately following delivery. Your G3P2001 female at 22 weeks gestation presents with blood pressure of 140 over 98. Her urinalysis is negative for proteins and she is asymptomatic. What is her diagnosis at this time? <music> Gestational hypertension. This is defined as new onset hypertension over 20 weeks gestation. Remember, if it's diagnosed under 20 weeks gestation, this is a diagnosis of chronic hypertension. Gestational hypertension is not considered preeclampsia without the evidence of proteinuria or features of preeclampsia, though half will develop preeclampsia later. Reduce this risk by initiating low-dose aspirin beginning around 16 to 28 weeks. First-line medications for hypertension in pregnancy is methyl dopa, 
and labetalol, with second-line treatments including nifedipine and hydralazine. One of the mnemonics I use to remember this is hypertensive moms love nifedipine. To remember H for hydralazine, moms M for methyl dopa, L for labetalol, and nifedipine, obviously nifedipine. Preeclampsia should be diagnosed in those over 20 weeks gestation with blood pressure of 140 over 90 with proteinuria, which is 300 or more milligrams on 24-hour urine or 2 plus on UA. You can diagnose this still without proteinuria if the patient develops pulmonary edema, hypertensive CNS symptoms like headache, or HELP syndrome along with the new onset of hypertension. And remember, HELP stands for hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets. The diagnosis of eclampsia is the patient having seizures secondary to preeclampsia. Seizure prophylaxis is with magnesium sulfate, and this should be initiated in those with preeclampsia and hypertension should also be controlled with the IV antihypertensives we discussed. The only definitive treatment for pre-E or pre-E with severe features is delivery. Your G2P0101 patient at 25 weeks gestation presents with vaginal bleeding and pelvic pain. Her prenatal history includes difficulty controlling gestational hypertension and UDS is positive for cocaine. Her uterine fundus is tender to palpation and the fetal monitor shows fetal distress. What is your suspected diagnosis for this patient and how do you treat? Placental abruption is the separation of the placenta from the uterine wall prior to delivery and is considered an obstetric emergency. If either the patient or fetus is unstable, immediate C-section should be performed regardless of the estimated gestational age. Placental abruption should be considered in patients with painful third trimester bleeding, especially in the setting of maternal hypertension or cocaine use. Differentiate with placenta previa which is when the placenta overlaps or implants on the cervix, leading to painless third trimester bright red bleeding. Remember, never perform a digital cervix exam on patients with the suspected diagnosis of placenta previa due to the risk of hemorrhage. Another differential should include vasa previa, which is when the umbilical cord inserts into the membranes of the lower uterine segment, which will present in front of the fetal head, leading to hemorrhage at the time of rupture of membranes, or visualization of the pulsating cords on cervical inspection. Your G1P0 patient with blood type A negative presents with vaginal bleeding at 14 weeks gestation. The blood type of the fetus and father is unknown. What could occur if Rogam is not administered? If the maternal and fetal blood mix, the patient may develop antibodies to the D antigen of the fetus if they happen to be Rh positive. This will not affect the current pregnancy, but subsequent pregnancies are at risk for fetal hydrops leading to fetal death. Rogam should be administered to all Rh negative patients anytime bleeding presents during pregnancy, again at 28 weeks gestation, and again within 72 hours of delivery of the fetus if they are Rh positive or if the fetal blood type is unknown and the father is Rh positive in the setting of the mother being Rh negative. Your G1P0 patient develops new onset hypertension at 18 weeks pregnant with excessive vomiting, abdominal pain, and vaginal bleeding. She states she thinks she could be miscarrying because some of the blood looks like a bunch of grapes. Ultrasound reveals a snowstorm appearance with uterus that is larger than expected size for her week's gestation. What do you suspect the results of her beta HCG will show?
You should suspect that her beta HCG will be higher than expected for her dates. Hyatidiform moles are considered a gestational trophoblastic disease which originates in the placenta and has the potential to metastasize. They can either be complete without any fetal tissue or incomplete with some fetal tissue, but either way, they are non-viable. Suspect in patients with new-onset hypertension at less than 20 weeks gestation, hyperemesis, and bag-of-grapes appearance of vaginal bleeding. Chest x-ray should be considered at diagnosis due to the risk of the metastasis to lungs, but also can metastasize to liver and brain. A DNC is recommended as treatment followed by serial HCG levels to confirm resolution. In those who have completed childbearing, hysterectomy is a reasonable alternative. Your G1P0 patient at 35 weeks gestation presents to her OB for evaluation of her pregnancy. On pelvic examination, pooling of fluid is visualized in the vagina and the nitrosine paper turns blue. Your suspicion is confirmed by ferning visualized on microscopic evaluation of the fluid. What should be done? Because she is at 34 to 36 weeks, she should receive GBS prophylaxis with antibiotics to reduce the risk of chorioamnionitis and corticosteroids should also be administered with delivery by 37 weeks. In patients presenting with preterm or premature rupture of membranes between 23 and 31 weeks, magnesium sulfate should be administered as well to provide neuroprotection to the fetus. Okay, that was a good amount of pregnancy complications. Let's move on to labor and delivery complications, which make up for 8% of the EOR. Your G1P0 female patient at 41 weeks gestation presents to the LND unit due to consistent and progressive contractions. Her pregnancy has been complicated by gestational diabetes and her fetus is large for gestational age. As the patient is pushing, the fetal head finally emerges, but then retracts quickly back into the perineum. What should be done? Advise your patient to stop pushing and initiate the McRoberts maneuver for treatment of likely shoulder dystocia given the presence of turtle sign, which is that retraction of the fetal head, in the setting of her risk factors. Shoulder dystocia usually results from the anterior shoulder getting impacted behind the pubic symphysis. McRoberts maneuver consists of hyperflexing the hips and legs of the patient while applying suprapubic pressure. The last resort is the Zavinelli method, which is reinserting that fetal head, followed by a C-section. The most common fetal complication of shoulder dystocia is transient brachial plexus palsy, like Herb's palsy, and the most common maternal complication includes hemorrhage and fourth-degree lacerations. We'll cover a couple other high-yield L&D complications in our rapid review, but now let's transition into postpartum care, which accounts for 6% of the EOR. Your patient loses 1,500 cc's of blood after a lengthy labor and delivery. What do you suspect is the cause of her postpartum hemorrhage? Uterine atony. This is the most common cause of postpartum hemorrhage. Postpartum hemorrhage is defined by the cumulative blood loss of over 1,000 milliliters or signs and symptoms of hypovolemia within 24 hours of delivery. Uterine atony should be suspected, especially if the uterus is enlarged and boggy after delivery and requires 
vigorous uterine massage along with the administration of Pitocin or oxytocin or fluid resuscitation if severe blood loss or signs of hypovolemia occur. Retained placenta is a rare cause of postpartum hemorrhage but can also lead to infection which is another reason why the placenta is thoroughly examined after delivery to ensure past and intact. About two days following C-section, your patient develops a fever and pelvic pain. Pelvic exam reveals foul-smelling lochia and labs reveal leukocytosis. What do you suspect is her diagnosis? Endometritis. This is the most common postpartum infection and results from an acute bacterial infection in the uterine endometrium after delivery. If infection occurs prior to delivery, it is usually secondary to chorioamnionitis, so ensure to differentiate if fever and other signs of infection begin before or after delivery in the stem. The biggest risk for endometritis is history of C-section, but other risks include premature rupture for over 24 hours, active labor for over 12 hours, high number of pelvic exams, or even PID. You'll treat with broad-spectrum IV antibiotics and admit if they're not already hospitalized. All right, thanks for keeping up. Let's go on to our rapid review. What should be suspected in a patient with recurring, painful genital and oral vesicles of various sizes with surrounding red rim in the setting of relapsing uveitis and positive pathogen test? This is Bichette syndrome which is a rare autoimmune disorder leading to idiopathic vasculitis. Which HPV subtype lead to increased risk of vulvar cancer? HPV 16, 18, and 33. The most common type of vulvar cancer is squamous cell carcinoma, and HPV 16 should be remembered as your most dangerous subtype. What should be done in a pregnant patient who's in labor and has genital herpetic vesicles visualized? C-section. What on peripheral smear may be seen to support a diagnosis of HELP syndrome? Burr cells or schistocytes indicate hemolysis. You may also notice pale RBCs secondary to a low hemoglobin and few platelets visualized. What is the most common solid pelvic tumor in women? Leomyoma or uterine fibroids. This is a benign tumor of the uterine muscle. Which week gestation should uterine fundus be palpated at the level of the umbilicus? 20 weeks. Starting here, bundle height in centimeters should match estimated gestational age until about 32 weeks. After delivery, the postpartum fundus should return to this height within about 24 hours. What is the most common cause of spontaneous abortion? Chromosomal abnormalities make up for 60% with uterine malformation as a close second. What should you advise your patient on regarding prognosis of uterine fibroids? Reassure that they decrease in size during and after menopause. Remember, fibroids are the most common cause of menorrhagia. Which complication of PID results in violin string adhesions? Fitzhugh-Curtis syndrome, aka perihepatitis. What treatment is recommended as endocrine therapy for those with ER-positive and PR-positive breast cancer? Tamoxifen. Those with HER2 positive can take trastuzumab, which is a systemic monoclonal antibody. What is the most common location of an ectopic pregnancy? 
The ampulla portion of the fallopian tube accounts for 70% of ectopic pregnancies, which most commonly present around six to eight weeks gestation. What is the first definitive sign of an intrauterine pregnancy? This is when the yolk sac is visualized on sonography, which should be seen around weeks five to six with a beta HCG over 2000. What is the most common breast mass in adolescents and young adults? Fibroadenoma. And remember what I said before, this carries a small risk of malignancy, so they should be monitored for changes and or aspirate with FNA. What is the first line treatment of abnormal uterine bleeding? combination OCPs or oral contraceptions, which are estrogens with progesterone. You may need to include iron supplements if the bleeding has led to signs and symptoms of anemia or anemia is present on the labs. What is the most common location of endometriosis? Ovaries. What should be suspected in a patient with bitemporal hemaniopsia, amenorrhea, and galactorrhea? Hyperprolactinemia secondary to a pituitary adenoma. The most common functioning pituitary tumor is a prolactinoma. What is the most common cause of postmenopausal bleeding? Atrophic vaginitis. Don't forget to rule out endometrial cancer with a biopsy. What is chandelier sign? This is cervical motion tenderness and you should suspect PID. What is the gold standard for treating ectopic pregnancies? Salpingectomy or salpingostomy is the gold standard. If caught early enough and small, you can consider methotrexate, which inhibits folic acid metabolism and thus halts the growth of rapidly dividing cells leading to medical miscarriage. What is the most common ovarian mass? Follicular cyst. Don't confuse this with the most common ovarian mass in pregnancy, which is the corpus luteal cyst. What is the Rotterdam criteria used for? Diagnosis of PCOS. What should you suspect in a non-pregnant patient of reproductive age with a history of PID, new onset chills, and unilateral adnexal tenderness and palpable mass felt on exam? Tubo-ovarian abscess. This may or may not present with fever, and you should treat in a hospital with IV cefoxetin and doxy, plus or minus surgical drainage if large enough. What is the most common type of breast cancer in both men and women? invasive ductal carcinoma, and remember this typically presents in the upper outer quadrant. What is the most common cause of ovulatory infertility? PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. This is most commonly caused by insulin resistance and will lead to hyperandrogenism. What is the antidote for magnesium toxicity? Calcium gluconate. What is the most common breach presentation? This is a frank breach presentation where both hips are flexed and both knees are extended, AKA the feet will be at the head with the fetal rump as the presenting anatomy. Oh my gosh, that is all I have for you all today. That was intense. Personally, I remember this is not my favorite EOR, but I know a bunch of classmates really did appreciate it. So I hope it works out for you and I hope all of my questions helped you. As always, you can find all the resources I use on my website where you can also look at the transcript for today's episode and all of our other episodes. Please like, comment, share, review, do all the things to help get this information out there and help others just like yourselves. 
You can also follow Pass Pack Podcast on Instagram at passpack underscore passport for near daily questions, mini quizzes on the stories, weekly updates, and much more. Don't forget to subscribe so you're always updated on when new episodes drop. Thanks for joining me today. Safe travels. Thank you for joining me today on Pass Pack. I hope you enjoyed the show and learned something along the way. Until next time, safe travels. As a responsible disclaimer, PassPack is not intended to be used as medical or legal advice, and though I try to always keep it educational and evidence-based, any and all opinions or viewpoints shared on PassPack do not represent those of my employer or the profession at large.